It is my honor to be with you again this morning to open the Word of God. And I would like to ask you to turn, please, to the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 52. Most of you are aware of the fact that just a few weeks ago, we experienced a situation where a prophecy had been presented by a man and the world unfortunately picked up on this prophecy. There was much discussion of May 21st, 2011. I don't know about any of the rest of you, but I have a neighbor who has a little orange car And on the back window, very professionally, I might add, uh, very professionally, had had uh, placed on this particular window, Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. And this individual, I would sort of stop uh, every little once in a while and see if I could see who this was as the day got closer and closer. Well, you may have checked your calendar recently, and um, well, it's, it's, it's past May 21st, 2011 now. And so I've sort of been uh, keeping an eye on that little car, and for a few days it was just there, and, and uh, you know, nothing, nothing special. And then I finally pulled up one day and I looked, and now it says, Judgment Day. And the May 21st, 2011 is gone been scraped off, because if you've been following Harold Camping at all, trying to keep up with uh, his rather tortured explanations that he's been offering since that time, uh, it's now Judgment Day. Judgment Day took place, May 21st, but it was a spiritual judgment, and all the earthquakes were supposed to happen at 6 p.m. in each of the time zones. Well, they didn't happen. But we just didn't understand, and see, now the end of the entire universe is October 21st. He had been saying that all along. And now it was so sad, I was, I was going to meet with some Mormons uh, Tuesday evening and I was listening to Harold, his open forum broadcast, and a lady called in and she said, well, what about babies that are born between now and October 21st? Because you see, they're basically teaching no one can be saved now. Time has passed, no one can be saved, it's all over with. But what about babies that are born between now and then? Are they automatically lost? And Harold just wasn't sure. It was sad, even before May 21st, he had callers calling in saying, should I euthanize my pets before May 21st because there's not going to be anybody to take care of them? And the atheists set up a service. Did you know this? For $135. They promised that after the rapture, they would come and take care of your pets. And it's good for 10 years. They said we're atheists, so we're not going in the rapture, but we love animals, and so we'll come take care of yours in case you disappear for only $135, and I think they had over 400 people sign up. But uh, I'm sure that there were some animals that were euthanized prior to May 21st, and here it is, June, and now we've got to endure till October, and on October 22nd, there will be a spiritualization of that too. And let's face it. When something like that happens, even though many of us, unfortunately yours truly, the only person who ever debated Harold Camping, that was an experience. 
Many of us have been saying from the beginning, this man's a false teacher, he's not handling the Word of God aright. The fact remains that we feel something about believing in the supernatural and about the prophetic. We are probably a little less ready to be upfront about that now in our society than we were just a few weeks ago because there's so much focus upon the foolishness of believing you can know the future. And yet, as Christians, we have absolutely no choice but to believe God knows the future. He says that very clearly in His Word. And what's more than that is we remember after Jesus' resurrection, He met with the apostles. And remember in Luke chapter 24, He literally had to open their minds to understand the things that had been written about Him in the Scriptures. He opened the Scriptures from Moses through the writings and explained how they had testified of Him. One of the most amazing passages in all of Scripture is found in Isaiah chapter 52. You might be thinking, oh, I I thought you were going to talk about Isaiah chapter 53. Well, the problem is, chapter and verse divisions in the Bible are not overly accurate. As you know, they're not ancient. Uh, They are a modern innovation, and if we really wanted to get this right, we would have probably divided it at Isaiah 52.13, because the section of Scripture that we need to look at is Isaiah 52.13 through the end of 53. Now, they may have divided this way because 52.13 says, Behold, my servant will prosper, he will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, and yet 53 is about the suffering servant, so maybe they divide it because of that, but you see the reality is this is all one section that in the brief time we have this morning I would like to address with you. Let me read it to you. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see. And what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off by the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. In these words, and I was looking, trying, I, I thought about it only as I was walking up here, and I apologize, I was looking for an image that I have on my device here, where I have the actual picture of the Dead Sea Scrolls that contains this exact section of Scripture. I'll track it down afterwards if anybody would like to look at it, if you really want to see it. We know without a shadow of a doubt that these words were written before the time of Christ. We have absolute certain historical documentation of this found in the great Isaiah scroll of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But there is really no question at all that they represent words that were written long before the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are only about a century before Christ. Even the most liberal datings of Isaiah would put it at, 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 the, at the very earliest 400 years. And uh, those of us who believe what the Bible says about itself, 700 years before the birth of Christ, these words were written. Now, our Jewish friends will say, well, this isn't, this isn't about Jesus. They have different ways of answering, but most of the time in modern Jewish understanding, this is about the nation of Israel itself. And there is no question in the book of Isaiah that Israel as a nation is called the servant of Yahweh. Even in the book of Isaiah, you are my servant whom I have chosen, says Yahweh, in Isaiah 43.10. And he's talking about the people of God. So there's no question that Israel is identified as Yahweh's servant, but is it possible that this text is about the nation? Especially when it's the sins of the nation that are placed upon this servant. The reality is that there is an intense focus upon this servant. And if you were a Jewish believer reading the prophecy of Isaiah centuries before the coming of Christ, how could you have pieced together all the pictures of the Messiah that were presented to you in the Old Testament. You have Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, the same writer who says that in Psalm 22, as the psalm goes on, it, it describes crucifixion very clearly. Yet that servant, by the end of the psalm, is victorious. You have Psalm 2. And there the Messiah is powerful and he reigns over the nations and, and certainly the people of Israel, especially as they're under the heel of Roman oppression in the first century, they're looking for that kind of Messiah. They're looking for the kind of Messiah that will cause their nation to be greatly exalted and to free them from the oppression of the Roman, the Roman state. But you see, that wasn't the only picture that was given. You had this servant who, here in Isaiah 52, he's, he's high and lifted up and greatly exalted. 
And yet, in only a few words, he is despised and forsaken of men. And we can understand why it is that there was difficulty in understanding. Now, you may be aware of the fact that this particular section of Scripture is quoted very often in the New Testament. There is no question that the writers of the New Testament see in the exalted and suffering servant the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 52.15 is cited in Romans chapter 15, verse 21. Isaiah 53.1 is cited in John 12.38 in Romans 10.16. Isaiah 53.4 is cited in Matthew 8.17, that where Jesus is engaged in healing, opening blind eyes. 1 Peter chapter 2 contains numerous references. 1 Peter chapter 2 is almost an exegesis, an interpretation of the suffering servant passage. Verses 5 and 6 are cited in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. 53.7 is cited in Acts 8.32. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch. He's, he's on the road. He's in the, in the chariot and he's reading from this text and, and he asks, uh, Who is this? And God gives him supernatural guidance as to who this is. And again, Isaiah 53.9 cited in 1 Peter 2.22 over and over and over again the New Testament writers cite this passage and its fulfillment in Jesus. And given that Luke tells us that Jesus spent time with the disciples opening their minds and opening up the Scriptures and explaining how the Scriptures had prophesied of Himself, certainly I would love to have been in the apostolic band to hear Jesus' interpretation of Isaiah 52 and 53. But thankfully, we have the inspired Scriptures and the same Holy Spirit to understand today. But I want us to understand, before we walk through this text, we are reading words that were written 2,700 years ago. And it's difficult for us in our modern context to, to step out of seeing all the fulfillments in Jesus. We, at our church, frequently on the days we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we will read Isaiah 53. We've heard it over and over again. Many of us have memorized major portions, if not all, of this text. And sometimes we become so familiar with it that it's difficult to hear it again. But I want you to consider, in light of the skepticism of our day, the naturalistic materialism that surrounds us, that says there's nothing supernatural, there's nothing special, it's just an ancient book, and and you folks, it's nice that you like to believe in ancient myths, but it's all just a bunch of myths. We are reading words that were written seven centuries before the events recorded for us by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 700 years. We have a servant who is high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now, when was Jesus ever high and lifted up and greatly exalted? Well, if you don't believe what the Bible teaches about Jesus' birth, then you wouldn't have an answer to that question. But this same Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah chapter 9, Behold to us, A child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, El Gabor, Mighty God, Aviad, Father of Eternity, 
Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. This same prophecy of Isaiah talks about Emmanuel, God with us. And so we have this prophetic testimony to the fact that as the followers of Jesus testified, He didn't come into existence in Bethlehem. This one, as the Carmen Christi, Philippians 2, 5-11 tells us, had eternally existed in the very form of God, but did not consider that equality He had with the Father something to be held on to at all costs, but He made Himself of no reputation. He was high and lifted up and greatly exalted. In fact, the vision of Jehovah sitting upon His throne in Isaiah chapter 6, John 12 tells us that was actually Jesus who was seen by Isaiah. And so He was high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But then He entered into human flesh. And the prophecy says, just as many were astonished at you, My people. And that's the New American Standard. And that is a a possible understanding of the Hebrew. But it could simply be, and just as many were astonished at you, speaking of the servant, and then it switches to the third person because that's found elsewhere in the text. So, my people, you'll notice if you have the New American Standard, is in italics. It's, it's added. It is a possible way of understanding it, but it's, it's not the only one. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Something happens to this one who is high and exalted and his appearance is marred more than any man. His form more than the sons of men. And somehow in this marring, this changing of his form, this alteration, something that he undergoes, he will sprinkle many nations. Now, I sprinkle many nations. I, I looked carefully at the Hebrew word for sprinkle, and guess what it means? Sprinkle. You know, I remember a, a class I took many years ago in college, and, and I was already involved in apologetics when I went to, to college, and so I, there were times in classes where my fellow students were just drifting away and didn't care about what was being said. And I was tuned right in because I already knew that what I was hearing was very important apologetically. And I had a, the same Greek professor for seven years. Poor man. He had hair when we started and didn't when we finished. And I'm not sure if that was my fault or not. But, but uh, I had seven years of Greek with this man. I was taking a, a class on, on Paul with him. And I remember very clearly him saying, Now... The Greek word for fear means fear. And nobody else in the class seemed to catch it. And I, I, I've still got the notebook where I wrote this down. I, I never threw anything out from college or seminary. And, and the Greek word for fear means fear. And the Hebrew word for sprinkle means sprinkle. There's no allegorical meaning or something. He will sprinkle many nations. And I thought about what could that possibly mean? And... You may have a study Bible. I may have cross-references. There is another interesting reference to this word found in Ezekiel chapter 36. And why would that be significant? Because if you know your Old Testament, you know Ezekiel 36 is the background to Jesus' teaching in John 3 about the new birth. Ezekiel 36.25 says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. 
There is a prophecy of the cleansing that will come in the New Covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, there in Ezekiel 36. And here, this one whose appearance is marred more than any man, somehow by this he will sprinkle many nations. And did we not, in our reading this morning, read from Revelation chapter 5? Now, by the way, the elders will uh, testify. Uh, Brother Mike, did we have any conversation about what I was going to be preaching about this morning? Not a bit. Nothing. Uh, And yet, we sang about the Lamb of God. And we read from Revelation chapter 5. What do you have in Revelation chapter 5? The song of worship to the Lamb who stands as if slain. And you, by your blood made a kingdom of kings and priests unto God for men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. There is the fulfillment coming, well, Revelation being later, almost 800 years after the time of Isaiah. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what they had been told they will see, what had not been told they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Something is going to happen because of the ministry of this servant that will have effects outside of just the people of Israel. This will impact the entirety of the world. There will be a proclamation made even to those in the highest places of authority about this one, this servant, My servant who sprinkles many nations. And yet, the question is asked, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? There will be disbelief. Even though the Gentile kings will hear, yet amongst the people of God, seems to be a general disbelief. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Is this not the New Testament picking this up and applying it to what? The unbelief of the nation of Israel. The Jewish leaders who knew these Scriptures and see the incarnate Son of God, they see the fulfillment. They see Him raise Lazarus from the dead. And what's their reaction? We need to kill this man. To whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Who has believed our message? The Apostle Paul quotes this of his own tribulations at the hands of the Jews as well. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Unlike the pictures that you might see in books, Jesus did not light up hallways and roads as He walked down them. There wasn't a special glow at night. He needed to use a lamp to walk down a dark road just like anybody else did. Only once on the Mount of Transfiguration did His true glory show through and only for a certain people. But when He walked down the road, everybody didn't come to a screeching halt and go, look, a man with a halo wasn't that way. When people came into the carpenter shop in Nazareth, they didn't stop and go, wow, who's that? He had no stately form or majesty. He wasn't born into the the highest of the caste of the land. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. Instead, He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men to hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. 
there were some who esteemed him, but they were the lowly of the land, those that he cared for, those that he healed. But the people of God, represented by their leaders, they couldn't believe he hung out with the people he hung out with. A wine bibber, he hangs around with publicans and sinners. Despised and forsaken of men, in fact, he would truly experience that. Even his own disciples, at his greatest hour, would forsake him. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wept outside Lazarus' tomb, not because he didn't know he had the power, not because he didn't know that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but because of the presence of human sin, suffering, and death. He was surrounded by the sick and the ill. Can you imagine what it was like? Remember Mark chapter 2? They opened up the roof above him to lower one down who could not get to him in any other way. He did not live in some some compound away from the world and protected from death and disease. He was out there in the midst of it. He even came face to face with evil itself. Not only political evil and Herod and Pilate, but think of the Gadarean demoniacs. And yet he had power over them as well. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Even when he brought life in the midst of death, those who should have seen Him first were blind. Blind because of their own sin. Blind because of their desire to keep their own traditions. Surely our griefs He Himself bore. How could this be? Notice how often in this text there is the concept of bearing and substitution. Bearing and substitution. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. How? How could this be? If he, how could He bear our griefs? How can He carry our sorrows? Are these not things we must bear ourselves? Do we not still have griefs and sorrows? If He bore them, then how can this prophecy have been fulfilled? There's some kind, whoever this is, he is a great person. And there has to be some kind of spiritual union between God's true people, between that remnant and himself, for him to be able to bear their griefs and carry their sorrows. And yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Well, who was it? according to God's law, that would have to be considered to be stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted under God's curse. The Apostle Paul picks up on this in the book of Galatians. And he reminds us of the law. The law told us something long ago. He who is hung upon a tree is cursed of God. And yet Jesus is hung upon a tree. He bears that curse that curse that belonged to us, our griefs, our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him. The people of God looked at Him. What do the scribes and Pharisees say? As they look upon Him, on the, they mock. Let God save Him if He's righteous. We esteemed Him stricken, 
smitten of God and afflicted. And is it not to this day the stumbling block for the Jewish people? He can't be the Messiah. The Messiah could not be placed upon a tree. He could not be cursed because they will only look at a part of what their own Scriptures say about the ministry of the Messiah. They only see a portion. It becomes a scandal on, as Paul says, a stumbling block to them. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's the people of God who know their transgressions. It's the people of God know they have iniquity. So clearly, this is not the people of God. It's not the people of God that is the servant here. Whoever this one is, he is pierced through. There is a substitution going on here for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He is pierced. He is crushed. Look at all the descriptions that are adding up here of what this one goes through. To be pierced. To be crushed. But all in reference to transgressions and iniquities. That's the negative aspect. The piercing and the crushing. But positively, the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. Those who understand their transgressions and iniquities, not those who deny them, but own their own transgressions and iniquities, they're the ones who recognize the chasing that brings our well-being. It fell upon Him. We deserved it, but He bears it. By His scourging, we are healed. Substitution. A spiritual substitution is taking place. Somehow this servant because of the nature of His ministry and this act that He undertakes, brings spiritual healing and life to those who recognize their own iniquities and transgressions. That's the confession of verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. The people of God confess their iniquity. That's why the scribes and Pharisees had separated themselves from the true path because they become so self-righteous. Remember the Pharisee in Luke chapter 16? He's in the temple and he's praying. I'm glad I'm not like this publican behind me. I tithe and I fast and... Yet the publican bows his head and says, Be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I say to you, that publican went down to his house justified rather than the other. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And our way is not a good way. To go to our way means we are no longer in God's way. And yet, Yahweh has not left us without hope. Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to encounter Him, to fall on Him. Can you imagine? We stumble and fall under the weight of our own iniquity. But here, listen to those words. He has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him if we are crushed by our own iniquity. How could He not be crushed unless there is something 
absolutely special about Him. He is crushed earlier in the text. It's the very term that is used. But somehow, there is a substitution going on here. Our iniquity falls on Him. And He bears it. And by His activity, somehow we are healed and forgiven. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So He did not open His mouth. Now, some of our Jewish friends say, Ah, see, this can't be Jesus because Jesus, He talked to Pilate and He talked to some of the women on the way to the cross. And there's seven statements if you put them all together from the Gospels, from the cross. And so, since He wasn't absolutely silent, but what does it mean to open your mouth? It doesn't mean you don't say a word. What it means is he did not complain. He did not say, Oh, you can't do this. I'm an innocent man. That's what any one of us would do. You can't do this to me. And yet, was it not Jesus who had, even before his crucifixion, had said to Peter and to the twelve, It is necessary that I go to Jerusalem. It is necessary that I go, that the Son of Man be betrayed in the hands of men, and that He die, and be buried, and rise again the third day. And remember, Peter said, oh, may, it, may it never be, Lord, get behind me, Satan. Your mind the things of man, not of God. Jesus knew it was necessary. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. As they drive the nails into his hands, you do not hear him crying out, Take vengeance on these my enemies. No, he doesn't say that. I am innocent, you're guilty. He doesn't say that. Like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Think of the, the mockery of the trials that were His. I think of what we mentioned yesterday in Mark chapter 14. Finally, the high priest says, I abjure you, I command you by the very name of God. Tell us who you are. And Jesus identifies Himself from their own Scriptures, from Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man who comes upon the clouds and His servants worship Him and they tear their clothes. What, what need of further witness do we have? You've heard the blasphemy. The one who had stood outside of Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth! And he comes forth wrapped in his grave clothes. And yet, as soon as Jesus identifies Himself for whom He is, blasphemy! The blindness. Woe to those who call light dark and dark light. That's the sin they were committing. And you think of Herod. He just wanted to see miracles. He wanted to see a magic show. And Jesus says nothing to him and does nothing for him at all. And Pilate, the consummate politician. His wife tortured with dreams. I washed my hands of this man. Oppression, judgment on the part of all of them. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off by the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? This servant dies. He's cut off by the land of the living. 
He has a grave assigned with wicked men. There is death to this servant. And yet, why is he cut off? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The transgression of my people. They're a sinful people. The stroke of death was due to them, but he bears it in their place. He dies, and yet his grave is assigned with wicked men. He's taken down from that cross, and at the same time, there are two other men that are taken down, and they were convicts. They had broken man's law. Yet he was of the rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea. Comes, he's a secret disciple. And he provides a place for the laying of the body in the sepulchre. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Sometimes our Jewish counter-apologist friends will say, Oh, but he had. He had driven people out of the, out of the temple. But that's not doing violence. That was cleansing the temple. To do violence is to murder, to rape, to pillage, to steal. Jesus had done none of those things, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was always very straightforward about who he was and what he taught. But despite this, the Lord, Yahweh, was pleased to crush him. He was pleased to crush him. This servant made himself available. He entered into this period of suffering voluntarily. When people think of that struggle that was his in the garden, oh, Father, if there be any other way, it wasn't death that he feared. Many men have faced death with great bravery. It wasn't death that he feared. It was being put to grief as the sin offering. Notice what it says. If he would render himself as a asham, a guilt offering. That's such. That's the depth of his suffering. It wasn't the whipping. It wasn't the beating. All those things were terrible. But can you imagine what it was like to have been eternally pure in everything and to become a guilt offering? To bear the sin and shame of others. That is why He prays in the garden. The Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. Now wait a minute, the Jew says. He will see his offspring. He'll have kids. Well, the term is also used of Abraham having offspring like the sand of the sea. Abraham didn't have that many. Has he seen his offspring? As He by His Spirit dwells amongst us this day, He sees us. And we are His offspring. His people. Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in every land. As the, as the globe has spun this day and the sun has moved from land to land in every language, Jesus Christ has been worshipped and praised. He has seen His offspring. He has prolonged His days. The good pleasure of Yahweh has prospered in His hand. And we are living testimony 2,000 years later. 
But wait a minute. He already died. How can he see his offspring and prolong his days? Unless there's a resurrection. His grave's already been assigned. He's with a rich man in his death. And yet, because he has rendered himself as a guilt offering, he sees his offspring. Something about what he's done in his death results in the good pleasure of the Lord prospering in his hand. Verse 11 sounds like it came right out of the book of Romans. As a result of the anguish of his soul, the anguish of his soul, he will see it and he will be satiated, satisfied. Jesus doesn't go, oh, I did the best I could. He is satisfied. He saves every one of those the Father has given to him. He fails in nothing. He will see it and be satisfied. By His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. There is how you have peace with God. Now, we don't see it quite as clearly because of the English translation. But it literally says, Yazdik, Zadik, Zedekah, righteousness. The righteous one will justify. We translate righteous and justice, justify, and so we don't see the, the parallel. But in the original language, that servant who is Zadik will make Zadik, righteous, will justify the many by His knowledge. How? Because He will bear their iniquities. The message of the Christian faith to all the world's religions and to all the world's peoples is that you can have peace with God. You can have perfect righteousness in His sight, but you will never find it in and of yourself. You must look away from yourself. You must have a righteousness that comes from another and it comes only from Jesus, the Messiah. He will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. He is the only one who can bear iniquities because He Himself was righteous. He did not have to pay for His own sins. He had no sins to pay for. But as the servant of Yahweh... He renders Himself as a guilt offering. He bears the iniquities of the many and therefore He brings about their justification, their righteousness in God's sight. And because He has accomplished exactly that which God assigned to Him, exactly that which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past had decided would be the means by which the triune God would be glorified, because He accomplished what He came to do. Therefore, I will allot Him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. This is the exaltation of the servant seen in Philippians chapter 2 once again. There in Philippians chapter 2, He will be highly exalted. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But you see, before exaltation comes humiliation. 
because he poured out himself to death. Notice the himself. He poured out himself. Not he was poured out. This is voluntary. No one takes my life from me. I give it of my own accord. He made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Who was this? 700 years before Christ, these words were written. He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Is this the people of Israel? No. This is one who voluntarily gives His life. He bears the wrath of God. He bears the sins and griefs and transgressions and iniquities. He doesn't do so separate from the will of the Father. He does so in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. He Himself bears the sin of many and He intercedes for the transgressors. That is why Paul can describe God as the God who justifies, the God who makes righteous. Not by simply blinking His eyes, ignoring His law, How is it that God can be the God who justifies and yet still be holy because of the work of the servant of Yahweh? The world mocks us for believing in a prophetic word from God. And we live in a day, in a land, in a society where every single one of us has been deeply influenced by naturalistic materialism, we, we have this grain of doubt that the world's constantly attempting to sow into our, our field. And yet here in front of you, you have words that without any question were written long before the events of Calvary. And as we consider... Everything they say, we recognize they could only have one fulfillment. They had that fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. And by His work, He has provided the only means by which anyone can have peace with God. It is my prayer that if you are here this morning... And you've bowed the knee before Jesus Christ that especially as we partake of the supper and we remember His broken body, His shed blood, that you will think of this text. And you will think of the great price by which your forgiveness, your righteousness, your peace with God, your sanctification, your adoption in the family of God, all of that was purchased with a great price. You are not your own. And as you look at this week of service, that you will desire to be poured out in service to this One who gave Himself for you. But if there be any here this day, 
and you have not bowed the knee before this one. You have not confessed Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one who made me. He is the one who created me. Every beat of my heart and every breath of my mouth comes from His hand. If you have heard that message and you have not bowed before Him, look at these words. Look at the prophecy. You will not be able to stand before God someday and say, I didn't know! Yes, you provided perfect salvation in Him. Yes, you called me to bow the knee, but I wouldn't do it. Oh, what a judgment upon one who has had such light. Consider the love of God shown in the provision of perfect salvation. Embrace Him. Experience His forgiveness. Receive the gift of eternal life that is the possession of all those who say Jesus Christ is Lord. They repent of their sins. They believe in Him. They are the ones whose sin He has borne. They are the ones who have Him as an intercessor. This very day, this very hour, He appears in the presence of the Father in my place. Just as the Lamb is seen in that chapter of Revelation, He's before the throne. How? Standing as if slain. The marks of the sacrifice still upon Him. His finished work intercedes for us and that is why we have peace. True, lasting shalom with God because of what someone else has done for us. Let us pray together. Indeed, our glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the work of Christ in our behalf. We could not save ourselves. You have provided it all. And that is why we will always bow the knee in worship and adoration and thanks for all of eternity, for we have nothing we can bring to You. Nothing that we can pay for what You've done for us. But we give thanks and we give you our love and we recognize that even this is a gift from your hand that is your spirit that took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. The wonder of your mercy and your grace. We will sing it throughout eternity. We do pray that we will be servants this week who bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. And we would pray that we would be bold in proclamation of this message to others. We pray that if there be any in the sound of my voice this morning or would hear later on by other means that have not yet bowed that knee in repentance and faith, Lord, that you'd show yourself powerful, that you would melt hearts of stone, you would draw your people unto yourself. To your honor and glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.